All right, we are back. Let's talk a little bit about medicine. I was quite um, quite intrigued by a piece by Cynthia Kraft in the Sacramento Bee in the Q&A section titled Dr. Probe's Roots of Illness. It's about a Dr. Charlene Hauser, who's marked her first year of practice at Sutter Health Group in Grass Valley. She was featured in a new TED book titled The Upstream Doctors. I got a quote from this. Cynthia Kraft asked the doctor to explain a bit about the upstream concept and where it comes from. Said Hauser, there's a parable that's well known in the health world. These good Samaritans come across a river and see children tumbling over the falls drowning. So people start doing everything they can to save the children. They throw them life jackets. They build rafts. They pull them out of the water. They start to construct bridges, design nets, and all sorts of devices to save the children. Then one of the rescuers leaves the group to head up the river. Where are you going, the others ask. We're trying to save all these drowning children. He says, I'm going to find out who's throwing the children in the water and stop it. And noted Dr. Hauser, we spend a lot of time in medicine trying to save people who are already drowning. We need people to look at why they're drowning in the first place. And of course, this is one of those things that's uh, correct and easy to talk about in principle, but hard to do something about in practice. Of course, one example cited in the piece about issues related to to rural poverty in Grass Valley. Said Dr. Hauser, we see a lot of issues related to isolation. People live on big pieces of property or far away from a neighbor or who have distances to travel to get to a place with food or any sort of social interaction. They might not be able to afford a car or maybe they can't drive or they have a disability. Transportation really is the limiting factor out here. So the less interaction people have, the more isolated they are and the more depression they can have and the worse all their chronic issues can be. It's also in the piece in the B recently about this very issue we've been talking about on this program about how our gut flora has everything to do with our health and we're just now figuring this out. As we talked about on this program, babies delivered by cesarean section appear to be twice as likely to become obese as those born naturally. Researchers, of course, theorized that the cause for this could be the fact that the cesarean baby is not exposed to mom's intestinal microbes. Put an article on WebMD.com last year, those born surgically are more likely to host a preponderance of gut flora called firmicutes, which are often predominant in obese adults. And while these current studies don't prove that surgical births cause obesity, it certainly is uh, something people need to take a very close look at particularly in regards to the fact that so many people get dosed with antibiotics regularly, which we've sort of always assumed, well, the gut would just find a way to restore itself. Well, maybe not. Could part of the solution to our obesity problem be in, um, let's just say, more judicious use of antibiotics? Well, I think so. There's intense interest in this area of medicine right now. We expect some um, valuable data to come out of it. I also want to note a piece in New Scientist from last year, which I didn't get around to discussing, titled The Subtle Knife. A piece by Samantha Murphy notes that after she underwent weight loss surgery, strange things started to happen in her mind, and she found out she's not alone. But the article explores the interaction between gut hormones and how it actually can affect the brain. It has long been known that uh, people who are obese just, well, they just react differently than people who are not obese to food stimuli and others. And this article explores a little bit of how, um, how we're deciphering how that may be. Samantha Murphy noted that after she had surgery to help her lose weight, a couple weeks passed and she sat on to enjoy a glass of um, 
her favorite peach iced tea, which she discovered tasted to her like fish. She noted in the piece that her new hypersensitivity to sweetness was surpassed only by the nausea that hit her when she smelled cooked meat. So she began hunting for answers in online forums. She noted that while her turncoat taste buds seemed to be a common phenomenon after weight loss or bariatric surgery, no one was offering a convincing explanation for why. But she also noted that she'd gotten off lucky. The forums were filled with horror stories detailing side effects from memory loss and anxiety to auditory hallucinations. Even more puzzling, there were unexpected mental boosts. About three months after surgery, a significant number of people experienced a sudden burst of mental clarity. This is pretty curious stuff. Popular opinion is that the Ruin-Y or gastric bypass surgery works in the principle of reducing the amount of food the body can absorb, and, and they certainly do, but there's clearly more going on than that. After surgery, people's eating habits change based on what's appealing to them. Samantha Murphy summarized that after bariatric surgery, food cravings were immediately massively dampened. Unlike people who are dieting, people who lose weight after surgery don't report a compensatory increase in food craving. Quite the opposite. They tend to report reduced levels of hunger. They have fewer food cravings and an overall altered relationship with food. This is interesting stuff. Within hours of any weight loss surgery, many people can't stand the taste of sugar or fat and sometimes find the very smell offensive. Now, it may be that the surgery that's being done is cutting into areas in the intestines that produce certain hormones. For example, the upper stomach produces the powerful hunger promoter called ghrelin, whereas the small intestine releases a number of appetite-suppressing hormones. Things like glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, or peptide YY, PYY, so that even fat cells play a part in regulating appetite, releasing leptin, a hormone that inhibits the desire to eat. And it's believed this has a feedback effect on the brain. Peace quotes a researcher saying that the post-surgical flood of GLP-1, for example, is one of the appetite uh, suppressors, immediately creates changes in the brain's reward centers in our orbital frontal cortex. And apparently things are going on in the brain. Studies have shown uh, that just three months after weight loss surgery, people scored better on cognitive tests than prior to surgery. Here's the punchline of the piece that's disturbing. They said there's a stinging caveat to evidence that the brain is permanently altered by surgery. Not all of these changes are positive. In fact, a researcher at the Mayo Clinic, Keith Josephs, discovered by accident, uh, well, that a lot of patients that were... um, post-bariatric surgery were having a variety of cognitive problems. They kept coming to him saying they had issues with having trouble finding the right word, difficulty concentrating at work, being slow to respond to people talking to them, short-term memory issues. Of course, they've involved MRI scans and trying to figure this out, and they find that um, these people reporting cognitive problems had a 24% shrink in volume of the thalamus. And perhaps not coincidentally, the thalamus does contain binding sites for ghrelin and GLP-1, appetite-regulating hormones. Pretty interesting stuff. And uh, to get off medicine and the science for just a brief second, we need to bring our, our favorite atmospheric scientist, Tony Held, back on the program to talk about the news reported in Science Recorder recently that researchers from the Georgia Institute of Technology have discovered significant numbers of living microorganisms, primarily bacteria, in the middle and upper troposphere. 
which is the part of our atmosphere about four to six miles up. As usual, they're they're using genomic techniques to look for uh, the DNA or RNA of, uh, of microorganisms, and they're finding it. And they did things like check air masses over the ocean to find, not, not surprisingly, marine bacteria. Samples from air masses over land showed mostly earthly bacteria. They also discovered convincing evidence that hurricanes had a big effect on the distribution and dynamics of microorganism populations. And this may be affecting our weather. It's noted in the absence of dust or other materials that could provide a good nucleus for ice formation. Just having a small number of these microorganisms around could facilitate the formation of ice at altitude and then attract surrounding moisture. Interesting. As is an article from last month's New Scientist, August 31st, talking about how our brains may run mechanically to some degree, like springs and cogs in a finely tuned watch. Article by Anil Anathswamy had to make me chuckle because I remember asking back in medical school, when, it, when a guy gets hit in boxing and knocked out, what's happening? I got to kind of a, a BS answer about, oh, short-circuiting the nerve connections, blah, blah. But, well, it may be more mechanical in nature. The piece opens with a discussion of a knockout punch being viewed on the screen while a researcher used it to highlight a problem, which is that knockouts are a bit of a mystery in our accepted understanding of the brain. We think of the brain as a biochemical and electrical organ, so how can a mechanical event, like a punch to the face, cause unconsciousness? Peace quotes William Jamie Tyler, is saying, We know without a doubt that there's no electrical transfer from that boxer's leather glove to that man's face. It's a mechanical impulse wave, yet he's unconscious. Well, Tyler's focusing on the fact that, uh, that neurons are hooked together in the mechanical network. And they've been looking into uh, cuttlefish nerves, of course, uh, squids, for some reason, have this giant nerve axon that's been a favored uh, thing to study by neuroscientists for, I don't know, forever. And they noted that observing cuttlefish nerves um, showed that they shrunk and swelled when stimulated by small electrical currents. And they've noted that as an electrical wave moves down the, the nerve axons, so does a mechanical wave. It's noted that this finding may help to explain the energy exchange that takes place when neurons fire. This is opening up a potential avenue of treatment by using ultrasound or other things to actually stimulate nerves and who knows, maybe treat epilepsy. We'll keep an eye on this one. And I don't want to say too much about this medical study because it could get me in a whole lot of trouble. But I did note that last month there were headlines about um, how poverty takes a toll on wallets and also brains. And apparently researchers up at the University of British Columbia took a look at uh, the correlation between, uh, well, measured IQ and, and an effort to assess impulse control and compare it to people's socioeconomic level. The carefully worded conclusions, as reported, were that poverty consumes so much mental energy that people struggling to make ends meet often have little brain power left over for anything else, leaving them more susceptible to bad decisions that can perpetuate their situation. Now, I'm tempted to note that, you know, if you're not mentally gifted, shall we say, or perhaps I might say you're just just not all that smart, it's, it's always seemed to me that there could be something of a correlation to your struggles in life, including your ability to earn an income. Well, I think there's some merit to this analysis. People do not want to go there. 
In this particular study, though, there are some interesting sidelights. Um, they noted that uh, they studied people in India, the decision-making abilities of farmers before the sugarcane harvest, when they were strapped for money, and afterwards when they had fewer financial woes. Well, they noted a drop of as much as 13 points in their IQ testing while they were stressed out. One of the, uh, one of the study authors said that poverty is the equivalent of pulling an all-nighter. Picture yourself after an all-nighter. Being poor is like that every day. And of course, I think we can all be sure there's something to that. In fact, back when I was in medical school, we had quite a good softball team. Not only did we win every game in the intramural uh, uh, softball league that we played, we pretty much thumped the opposition every time. Our typical score was 22 to 6. But we medical students were on a different schedule than the rest of the UCI campus. And unfortunately, as the playoffs began, we had a final. All of us dutifully studied with all-nighters, as people are wont to do, took our test the next day, and then that afternoon, went out to play some softball. Not surprisingly, we played like crap. I think every single member of the team just did something they wouldn't have normally done, just maybe didn't get the hit, didn't make the fielding play, something. We went in the ninth inning tied 5-5. to And I'm sorry to report that the opposing team managed to put one final run across to win the game and end our attempt to become the champs. So I guess it's no surprise, dear listener, that we are frequently talked about the importance of getting a good night's sleep on this program. This is becoming so obvious to people, I, I hope, at this point, that there was a piece in The Bee by Cheryl Hall, reprinted, reprinted from the Dallas Morning News. This is from uh, July 21st. On how the lack of sleep and so many Americans, is now apparently having an impact on business and getting people's attention. In fact, the piece started noting that Jim Mass has a simple answer for employers who want to contain escalating health care costs and increase productivity, job satisfaction, and creativity. Encourage your workers to get one more hour of sleep each night. He notes that most adults need seven and a half to eight and a half hours of shut-eye. A select few can get by with six and a half hours or less, but others may need more than 10. According to the, to the sleep researcher quoted, that almost everybody's running on a 46 to 60 minute sleep deficit. He said that might not sound like much, but it's enough to create a zombie nation. Now the piece did include 10 tips for nocturnal bliss, a few of which we might want to cite. They suggest you do want to get a high coil count mattress that keeps your head, neck, and spinal cord aligned while you're sleeping. You should invest in a great pillow that conforms to your sleeping style. And of course, whether you sleep on your side, your back, or your stomach, that's apparently a, an important determinant of, of what you should uh, have for a pillow and mattress. Interestingly, they suggest that you should cut out all nicotine, including smokeless tobacco. It's actually a stronger stimulant than caffeine. Peace suggests you set your thermostat to 65 to 67. People sleep better when it's cool. And you may want to put masking tape over the electronic lights in your bedroom that uh, might make it look like a NASA control room. Another thing you may want to do, write down your worries. Get them out of your head and onto paper where you can address them later. You may also want, want to create a pre-sleep routine of hot bath, warm jacuzzi, or maybe a, a light snack. This correspondent is a big fan of the late night hot bath. Friends of mine I'm speaking with on the phone around uh, 10.30 or 11 off and ask, are you taking a bath? To which I always reply, yes, I am. And I must say that more often than not, the response I get is, that sounds like a good idea. And no, Ms. Merlin, I do not then invite them over. 
but rather suggest that they may want to take one too. All right, let's close off by moving from sleeping into eating, or maybe back into eating. Mental Floss sounded off on the question of whether breakfast really is the most important meal of the day, and uh, like most previous debates, didn't settle it, but did note that when something called the Massive Health's Eatery app combined data on its users' food intake last year, it found that people who skipped breakfast made consistently less healthy food decisions during the rest of the day. Maybe you should grab some waffles in the morning. One thing you probably won't start off with is popcorn soaked in cream. But the magazine also noted that the cold cereal, as we know it today, only caught on in the late 19th century. Before that, Americans would indeed eat popcorn soaked in cream. And then when cereal pioneers like Dr. John Harvey Kellogg created new, more palatable breakfast options, popcorn, well, it didn't disappear, but it shifted its time slot. Instead of being a morning treat, popcorn transitioned to being an afternoon snack. Curiously, it wasn't until World War II, when sugar and chocolate were scarce, that popcorn's popularity really soared. As the government rationed other ingredients, Americans reached as never before for the salty treat they could munch without restrictions. All right, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. we got lots more in our third and final segment. Don't go away. <laughs> 